Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to the You Are Not So Smart Podcast, episode 53. We are almost at our first major milestone. We've almost reached our first major milestone over at Patreon and you could help us go over the top. And I <laughs> I know we can go over the top. It would only take about 1% of the people listening. And if we do, that means I'll be able to make more shows like the one about changing minds that had me traveling all over the place, interviewing experts and pastors and same-sex marriage activists to tell the story of Gordon Allport's contact hypothesis. I want to do more shows like that so much. And if we reach the next two milestones after that one, we can hire a producer and a reporter, which would just be so incredible because my dream for the show is to one day be able to produce a season of episodes where we deeply explore a series of topics by going out into the world and collecting lots and lots of stories and weaving it all together, editing it together and making these great shows. And uh, we can totally do that. We can totally do that with your support. To everyone that's helped so far, thank you so much. The patrons right now, you get the episodes ad-free. You get uh, episodes with extra content. You get the uncut interviews like you're going to hear the uncut interviews going up actually today after this goes up. You're going to hear the uncut interviews from the last episode, both psychologists. So to learn more about all of this and to pitch in and put us over the top, just head to patreon.com slash you are not so smart. Okay, so this episode is going to be an extension of episode 52. And let me explain why. I've received so many emails about episode 52, which was about learned helplessness. And these emails have been very personal. I've read all of them. I've responded to most of them. And I've, I've really been moved by these emails. I've been moved by your stories. The episode was about this weird byproduct of the normal and natural learning process. It's, it's this thing, you know, when we learn, any animal that can learn, an animal with a brain that can form memories and has the ability to have its behavior shaped by reinforcement and conditioning, basically that animal will be able to learn that it can't be effective. And once it does that, it's hard to come out of it. Basically people can be hit so hard by life that when they hit the ground, when they're in the mud, they won't try to get back up again because they assume all that does is invite another beat down. But as we learned in that last episode, 
It's not true. You can unlearn this response. And for people suffering from depression or learned helplessness or any of the tangential troubles associated with either state of mind, there is hope and there is help. And that was the big takeaway for the show. And I got a lot of email about it. And I want to say thank you to everyone who did that. It was, it was really good feedback, really fantastic to hear your stories. And this episode is going to be an extension of that episode. So if you haven't listened to 52, go back and listen to it and then come to this one and hear about how scientists and people who work in education are trying to rid the school system in America of learned helplessness. I mentioned in the last episode that learned helplessness is something that gets a lot of attention in academic settings, in schools, in classrooms, among teachers, and the teachers of teachers. In this episode right now, you're going to hear an interview with Ulrich Christensen. He's a senior fellow of digital learning at McGraw-Hill Education, and his take on this is that he and his team and his company, they have developed a computer-assisted learning tool that identifies when a student is at risk for learned helplessness or maybe headed down that path during a particular assignment. And this tool helps teachers to address this situation early on and to prevent it. So he's actually trying to eradicate learned helplessness in our schools using technology. And he'll also discuss adaptive learning and how science and digital tools are helping schools and teachers deal with a variety of other issues when it comes to educating people and avoiding the sort of delusions and biases, and other problematic mental phenomena we often discuss on this show. And you will hear all about Christensen's work and his advice after this break. I love learning about how the mind works. I love discovering new things, finding explanations about why we behave the way we do. And that is why I am fascinated by this Great Courses series, Behavioral Economics When Psychology and Economics Collide, taught by Professor Scott Hutel. I'm listening to it for a second time. There's going to be so many episodes related to these things that I'm hearing in this in this series. It's so great because it draws on methods from psychology, sociology, neurology, and economics, and it gives you these insights about how humans approach and how they ultimately make decisions and therefore how you do it. And so it provides these tools for making better and more satisfying decisions in your own life. And also has all these, there's advice about what to do when you're trying to accomplish something. Sometimes incentives are disincentivizing. What? Brain hurt? No. Yes, it's true. Because if you like, if you want people to donate blood to, you want more people to come in and give blood, you might think you want to give them money to do that. Offer some sort of cash reward that would actually cause the number of people to cut that are usually coming in to plummet. And there's a, total explanation of this that has been studied upside down and backwards. And you will get that in behavioral economics when psychology and economics collide. One of eight courses that they are offering right now for a limited time at 80% off. I mean, (laughs) when's the last time you got anything that you truly wanted? Not like a broken VCR at the thrift store. Got something as cool as this for 80% off. Order today. Go to thegreatcourses.com slash smart. That's thegreatcourses.com dot com slash smart. Don't tweet me asking why you can't get it anymore. I told you it's going away. Don't forget, just go to the greatcourses.com slash smart. You are not so smart is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. 
Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund Revolution and who've written some of the most important books in finance. And in case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages more than $2 billion in client assets right now and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com slash SoSmart to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Required disclaimer time. Wealthfront Incorporated is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation. Member FNRA and SIPC, this is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there's the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results, so please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure. And now we return to our program. Ulrich Christensen is trying to get rid of learned helplessness using technology. He is a senior fellow of digital learning at McGraw-Hill Education. He originally did work with doctors. He was trying to figure out how to create technologies that would address human errors in medicine and help people learn better, help people learn more appropriately, help people get rid of all these biases and delusions and try to just increase the effectiveness of education in the world of health and medicine. And he's now taking that same technology, working with McGraw-Hill to apply it to teachers and students and classrooms. And you're going to hear all about that right now. Let's pick his brain. Um, so as I understand it, you've been going around the country giving lectures. What are those lectures about? So, um, my area of expertise is, um, adaptive learning and, and how you build systems that can very precisely analyze what students know and don't know or, and their abilities to use that knowledge. Um, I, um, have worked for about 20 years trying to understand what makes people learn things so they can actually apply them in real life later. My original background is I'm a physician. We started looking at, at doctors and nurses and uh, later went further back into education to uh, try to understand what actually happens when you go through school and how does that then manifest itself when you make mistakes later. So um, part of that I'm assuming is that you discuss uh, learned helplessness. Is that right? Yes, we, we often call it something else uh, with adult learners, um, but, but it's, it's a very central concept for, um, for, uh, for motivation and how uh, learners are, um, are propelling or going through their learning. So it's incredibly important for us 
to um, deal with whether you call it learned helplessness or motivation. Um, we see a, a large group of learners um, who think they just because they're failing now, they won't ever be able to excel. It's one of the biggest obstacles to learning math. Math is an extreme example, and a lot of research, as you know, has been has been conducted in this area um, around trying to get out of that uh, vicious circle where students keep failing, and the more they fail, the, the less they believe they can ever learn math, which leaves us with probably two-thirds to three-quarters of the world's population um, hates math and do not believe they can ever improve in math. So... Um this is that's interesting because uh, I was one of those people in um, high school that I thought that uh, I hated math and I thought that I was no good at math. But then I got into um, I took algebra over like a, a summer and uh, as as one of my only classes and I was like I'm going to pay very close attention to this class and I'm going to work really hard at it and I was able to get an A in algebra and I thought that I was bad at math and it turned out it was just, um, it had a lot more to do with my approach to the problem and it, had, and it required a teacher who, who had a, a slightly different teaching method. Um, what are some of the ways that you've seen in your, um, in your profession that people, what are some techniques that educators can use to sort of bypass that feeling of learned helplessness? So I, I think, I think teachers can use a number of, of different tools. Many of them are actually just being classically good teachers with enough time to uh, focus on the individual. Often the problem is that it takes time to handle the individual differences in how students learn. Math is just one example. So the challenge you have if you don't have enough time is how do you actually handle those very specific challenges a student has? So a good example or a classic um, uh, antidote, you could say, against learned help, uh, helplessness is that you're very specific in the constructive feedback you give the student. That's very hard if you have 20 uh, students in a classroom. That's why we've worked on building technologies that can help um, ease that burden on the teachers so that they can work on the cases that most requires human interaction and human intervention, but for a lot of the more technical things, a lot of the more domain-specific things, if you can get computers and, and uh, intelligence systems to give very targeted feedback, you can actually address this with many of the same methodologies that work in real life, but you can, you can produce it in an environment that we normally cannot afford. In other words, we can be much more individual because it's computers who now do it, and not only teachers. That does mean that the teachers should not also be doing it. So part of it is to use a mix of two methods. You both use computers, and then you report to the teachers how far you can get with computer interventions, and then the teachers take over from there in the cases where the computer systems come short. Mm -hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah, what, what are some of these computer systems? What are the, how, how do they work? So what they do is they, they very specifically uh, analyzes and measures what this individual student uh, could improve. So it doesn't just teach a one-size-fits-all curriculum. It very, very granularly molds the curriculum around that student. We call it adaptive learning. Um, so as an example in math, if you, if you give a student an equation and they have to isolate X in it, we, we were 
we were shocked or blown away about four months ago when we first got the data out of one of our new research programs that showed that the diversity of how students uh, in a relevant way got from A to B was maybe 10 times more diverse than we ever expected. And we were, we were quite conservative, expecting like a pretty wide uh, like array of ways to approach it. And they were just all over the board and they were all relevant, which means that if we had tried to predict that ahead of time, that would have been really, really hard. And we would have left a lot of students, a lot of the students on the fringes of the most common solutions, they would have been left alone and they would have felt that they were doing wrong, where in fact, they were actually doing it right. A teacher would be able to see this if they had time to spend 100% of their attention on that student while the student was going through it. But not even the best schools have a one-to-one teacher-to-student ratio. So this is a way to help improve the virtually improve the student to teacher ratio while still getting all the benefits of the great teachers. And um, is this something that was developed at McGraw Hill is, or is this something that's uh, come from several different sources or how is it, what is sort of the, uh, the pedigree of this computer aided uh, adaptive learning? So uh, it comes out of a group I founded. Um, the core of the group was founded back in the mid nineties where we looked at human errors. And then we first looked at it in medicine sold a company back in 2002 to it that was only active in medicine. And then in 2007, we uh, founded a, a new group called Area 9 that uh, soon after started working intensely with McGraw-Hill. So in a, in a year-long partnership, we have uh, done research and matured these adaptive systems with McGraw-Hill that ultimately culminated last year when McGraw-Hill bought a large part of the Area 9 business and integrated that as the, the main platform for adaptive learning. Hmm. Um, so I've read that there's a problem with learned helplessness in, um, in American education systems, particularly because in, um, in uh, USA education systems, they, they tend to center more or less on this binary evaluation that delivers a feedback to students that indicates that uh, either they've succeeded or failed at a test or a task. So it's like a pass or fail system. And, and with that, you sort of have a series of failures, um, and those series of failures aren't really seen as a necessary path to success, but as a series of stopping points to indicate that, like, no matter what you do, you're going to always be a failure. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I, I think that's a very relevant criticism of, of a system that is highly based on standardized tests. So the, the challenge with weak students is that, and I don't think you have to be a, a psychology professor to, to see this, the, the challenge is, of course, if you take students who are weak and you say, now I'm going to make a high-stakes test where I'm going to judge you, all we know about learned helplessness is that it's much, much better to look at the small incremental steps, reward them for the progress, not for their ability. So if you, if you try to do that for most of the time, but then you say, but I'm still going to put you, uh, hold you responsible for performing well at a, in a high stakes, or at a high-stakes moment, the psychological effect that you can expect, I think, um, is that you have these students saying, in order to protect myself, because I, I'm afraid that I'm bad at math, or I'm afraid I'm bad, at bi- I'm bad at biology, I'm going to not really count this as really important for me. So I'm going to uh, disregard it as something that is really important, or I'm going to be really scared of it and I block so I can't learn. None of the things, none of the outcomes of having that high stakes test matches what we know is productive in terms of avoiding learned helplessness. 
So the alternative is that you build systems where you're continuously monitoring where the students are. So the ultimate form of what could be called formative assessment, that you every day, every five minutes, are monitoring the students, giving them specific constructive feedback, rewards, positive reinforcement for the progress they're making, helping them understand that the struggling that they may be going through for periods of time. And sometimes we know students are struggling four, six, eight hours in math without making progress or in other areas, but math is extreme. Um, they need to know that it, it's not because they're bad people or bad students. It's because it's completely natural. That's much easier to do while they're in it than doing using standardized tests to do that. Standardized tests can be used to compare schools. If you, That's really important for the schools to be compared. But I, I'm not sure that the standardized tests are productive for learning in this situation. Mm-hmm. Is um, There's been a lot of talk in uh, recent years about um, grit is sort of just sort of the shorthand for this um, this idea of perseverance and uh, sort of uh, there's a lot of people out there who are saying that grit is probably more important as far as a a, uh, a skill that you're trying to instill in students than just focusing on raw intelligence. In other words, um, do you think should we be encouraging students to think of themselves as hard workers instead of having them think of themselves as being smart? I, I completely concur with a lot of the research out there. And Judith Duckworth is one of the, the fascinating um, thought leaders in this area. I, um, I think it's, it's incredibly important that students realize that it's not, big, it's, it's not just a matter of something you're born with, how you perform. It's a combination of uh, many different things including how hard you work and the one the aspect that they can really do something about is how not only how hard they work but also how smart they work um, so for a lot of the students who are already completely overburdened a lot of them are fighting they go to bed at midnight they're trying to see if they can hang in there by their fingernails it's a very important i think to address this grit issue or this motivation or perseverance um, aspect of learning in order to help them change the things that are under their control. They cannot change their genes. They cannot change the environment they're growing up in, but they can, they can change their attitude to learning. Mm-hmm. So that, there, that is, that's another aspect of it that, that seems to uh, complicate things. Sometimes you have students who have some sort of learning disability, or you might have a student who is in a, a life situation, maybe it's poverty, or maybe it's some sort of um, illness at home, or maybe there's a poor home environment. So in there are many situations that um, can lead to a student having a certain kind of difficulty that other students don't have to face. And I imagine that that could lead to feelings of learned helplessness over time. Is there is that something that educators are thinking about? And if so, what are they? Um, what seems to be sort of the, the correct way to approach those sort of difficulties? Well, I think educators are very mindful of this. That's one of the reasons why I'm a strong proponent for uh, cutting through any discussions about whether it's a technology or educator discussions. It, it's an and discussion. It's both. Um, but I, I think if we look at how computer systems and, and how... Um, how a lot of the other technologies we've introduced could have negatively impacted this is that if we start having one-size-fits-all solutions for the students, 
There is actually a risk that the, that the weaker students who already feel under pressure, that, that they, they get more marginalized. That's why we, we started doing research into these uh, more individualized systems over a decade ago, trying to figure out how do we handle those individual differences? How do we make sure that the education system stays relevant despite trying to get computers involved? Because I don't think computers per se are good. Like it's an improvement to introduce computers or technology. I think we have some horrible examples where I think um, where I think the the methodologies the early computer systems were using and many of them are still in in active use have actually produced learned helplessness or produced demotivation. A good example in, would be in math, where you you have computer systems where instead of pinpointing the mistakes students are making, you just say it's wrong. Show them how to do it instead, and then give them another algorithmically generated question. It's pretty obvious that that's, that's not a way any teacher would behave. Because if a teacher did this, we would say, did, didn't you learn how to teach kids? When you ask, ask the kid instead to show his work, show the intermediate steps, pinpoint what went wrong, and talk about that. Mm -hmm. instead, of, instead of just grabbing the pen and paper and, and show them how to do it and hope that they can interpret from that. That's really demotivating when I've, I've observed dozens and dozens of kids in this situation when, when, we're, when we're looking at it in the lab. And, and it's pretty obvious that that's not stimulating to just be told how to do it and hopefully they can try to figure it out, which they never can because it's a higher order operation to interpret from a model solution what they did wrong than to fix it in the first place. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And there's this, um, there's this sort of... Um method that you see pop up a lot. And, and when you read about learned helplessness, a lot of people write about this and it's the, I do, we do, you do method. And, um, what I read is that learned students who have a problem with learned helplessness, they will get bogged down in the you do portion because they, they sort of tend to wait on the teacher. Um, and they seek help and they stop working. I read, uh, a, uh, a strategist named, uh, his name is David Ginsburg say that he recommended starting doing it in reverse, um, starting with you do, and then, uh, and then moving forward because he says that you can act, you can teach persistence, resilience, and resourcefulness. What do you think? I, I think I, first of all, I'm not sure that, that there is one way to help all students with a certain sequence. I actually, I, I we see a very di diverse response from students. So I think it's more a question of in some cases to do it in one way and in other cases to do it in another way. So I'm, I'm really humble about an ability, being able to predict before you get to know the student what will work better there. I think both of them are useful methods. But I also think that it's, it's really important that it depends on the situation. We've seen some interesting things over the last decades when you, when you use computers and, and it's in a much more private setting. And in some cases, it's actually not as hard to fail if you're alone just with a computer compared to if you're with your teacher or you, with your friends. So sometimes we can lower the barrier to failure, uh, the barrier to be willing to try and potentially fail instead of giving up. Um, we, it's an area we're, we're looking quite carefully at right now. We don't have any conclusive findings yet, but I think it, it, there is a high likelihood that we will find an impact in this area in the future. Mm -hmm. So it's both a question of having different approaches for different students. They may all exhibit learned helplessness, but I think it, it's probably not a, a, um, a, a one intervention therapy we're looking at. I, I think it's probably multiple. 
But the other one is also to try to look at different modalities in which you interact with the students. And maybe those modalities are fundamentally different in terms of what response from students they elicit. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a lot of, um, there's been a lot of, um, I guess, uh, excitement and sort of um, a lot of people have been wondering about these uh, sort of the, the tiger mom approach to teaching children. And uh, in the recently the movie Whiplash we got, has been very popular in the United States, been very popular because of the Academy Awards nods. And, um, you know, it, that features a teacher who is very, very harsh and critical and um, and focused on. Um, you know, success at all costs and, and really punishing for failure. The tiger mom approach is also sort of this really harsh approach. Uh, um, there's a lot of, a lot of people seem to think that there's some sort of um, value to that versus a um, everyone's a winner kind of approach, which has also been popular in recent years. Um, do you think that, it, that these are good approaches, that they're dangerous approaches, that they're weird approaches? What are your thoughts? <laughs> I must say that it, I find it very, very hard to believe that a harsh approach, particularly to kids and young people, can ever be successful. Um, I think there are probably some top performers or potential top performers who will be able to survive that. But, but I, I, it, it is not my primary hypothesis that we should try to be harsh on kids. I actually think it's much, I, I, I've always, no matter what we've done, we've been rewarded for an understanding, accommodating, individualized approach. Um, I, I think it, it, if we are to get the kids to work harder, it needs to be a matter of them deciding that this is worthwhile for me to do, not because they're afraid of the consequences, but because they're hungry for the result. And we, have, we actually have some like, really firm findings from um, the first several million students who've used uh, this is primarily higher ed, but who have used adaptive systems that they work substantially harder when you open up their eyes to where their weaknesses are, but you do it in a way that is non-punitive compared to if what they're, what they're normally doing. There are people who have been claiming that the only reason why the adaptive systems may work is because the students work harder. Mm-hmm. But would it be so bad? What if we can get the students to voluntarily invest some more time in it? simply because they now know where their weak spots are and that they are tempted to spend more time on it. Mm-hmm. So, so I definitely do not believe in a, in a stake approach here. Mm-hmm. I, I believe in it in a very isolated um, area um, that we've done a lot of research in, which is if, if you have unconscious incompetence, uh, particularly at older ages, I think it changes a little bit. That where you have to knock off that, that shell of, um, of people where they think they know it all, but they actually still need to learn. Mm-hmm. In that case, you, you can get away with more punitive things where you basically show them the negative consequences, either through simulations or penalty points for exhibiting behavior that is uh, non-productive. <clears throat> but in, in terms of motivation and trying to drive motivation, I'm, I'm absolutely not a believer in the other approach. Right. Well, that's good to hear. Because <laughs> uh, I've seen that and I'm like, it seems like that would be counterproductive. Um, yeah. It's nuts. I, I came from elite sports. And uh, how often have anybody ever performed better if you just shout at them? 
Right. I mean, it seems like it will create that feeling of learned helplessness. Like you're you're making it happen. Um, in in the people who are susceptible to it, they will definitely be like, well, then I'm just not doing this anymore. Yeah, and the big challenge we have in education is not the three percent that qualifies to go to MIT or Howard or another uh, top institution. The biggest challenge we have is to get a, a substantial number of the people who go who goes to high school actually completing high school, and the same thing in college. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not. The, if we start to um, implement approaches that have a risk of uh, increasing failure rates, that I think that's completely mindless. Mm. So if I uh, was going to use one of your systems that you are helping develop and, and put out there in classrooms, like let's say I was, uh, I was working on uh, an algebra class, what, what, kind of, what kind of, what would I, could I expect? Like put, sort of put me in the... Uh, in this, in the seat in front of this system, and and what would it be like for me to to work through one of these problems and see my mistakes and so on? So it would very much be like if you had your your uh, had, had the wealth to hire a math teacher to come to your home and work with you. So the, that teacher would mo- would most likely give you a couple of of problems to find out where you are with, with algebra. Then you would solve some of them. You would make some mistakes, and it and. Uh, the teacher, if you had the, the personal teacher, in this case, the computer will highlight where um, where something is not correct and say, okay, there is something wrong here. Can you see what's wrong? And then in many cases, it's just a mindless like brain fart where uh, you fix a, a plus to a minus and you move on, which is actually really important because what you, what you avoid there is to slap them on their hands without having to. An innocent mistake can can be something that the rest of it you just get a red minus for, or it can be something where the student says, oh, this one was just innocent, but the rest of it was right. Yeah, I'm pretty good at this still. So in a lot of cases for all the innocent mistakes, if you're able to very precisely pinpoint it and ask them to just review that step one more time and move on, don't have to do anything but that. The second thing is, let's say that there is something where they can't see what's wrong, then it's it's much more motivating if you're able to then deliver an intervention that is specific to what went wrong there. You may you may be trying to isolate X, but the problem may be to divide the um, to divide correctly on both sides of the equal sign, right? Mm-hmm. Then that's what we should talk about, not not the general principle around how to isolate uh, X in an equation. Um, so the more precise you can get, the better, and that's what these systems do. But then finally, it it also does something else. It helps you go back and revisit and, and circle back to things you were struggling with in the past. So we, we typically split up the day between learning new things and what we call recharge old things or things from the past. Because one of the biggest challenges that leads to this helplessness is that you get through, uh, you get through the semester or trimester and then you... you um, Learn something in week one and something in week two and the third thing in week three. But the less good of a learner you are, the less good you are at actually figuring out why did I not learn good enough in week one, two, and three? What should I go back to? We help keep track of that based on what happened and suggest things or, and build a small tar- tailored curriculum every day for what could you go back and revisit that will help you move forward. Because often things are related. And weak students are getting lost in in that mess. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? It makes a lot of sense. And um, 
I love that. I just, it's just so wonderful that there are, there are organizations that have made this, you know, their goal is, and then, and that you, uh, you're not just, you know, it's not just sort of pie in the sky. Let's do this. Maybe one day it's, you know, you really are like saying this is, there's a way to get at this. What would, what would you say is the, um, is the primary goal of, of, of your goal and the, and the goal of the, of the institution that you work with, that you work for? So I have a very simple picture in my head when, 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 whatever we do something in education, I want to, and, and particularly when it's behind the computer, I, I want for my, um, when I close my eyes, I want to see that student uh, give his, him or herself a, a, a fist pump saying, now I got it. I want I want the students to succeed. I want the students to receive that as long as we still have the standardized test, the test result where they performed better than they expected. And they're happy that there was actually something that helped them. Personally, the thing that really drives my engine is when I get these letters from students, which we luckily get weekly, where they're saying, I nobody has ever had the patience to to stay with with me long enough to learn X or Y or Z but this thing really helped me. Thanks for making it. And the fact that students realize that this is something that, that made them succeed. Um, and ultimately what that means in the bigger scheme of things is that we get more students who actually get a useful degree that they can go out and get a job and earn a living instead of the risk that they end up accumulating debt, going through school and never succeeding and then getting lost. So that is the ultimate goal is of course, to, to have a rising tide in terms of um, how much of the population that gets a useful degree mm-hmm. or actually a useful education, not necessarily a degree, but just a useful set of skills and knowledge that they can use to, to make their lives better. Mm-hmm. And what would you say have been the, the greatest challenges for you uh, along the way of reaching that goal? I think the... The biggest challenge is that it's not a, there are no one hit wonders in this world. Like it's not like or a, a single strike solution. Um, this is a combination of a lot of technology innovation breakthroughs combined with thousands and thousands of people who need to develop content that can be delivered in this new world. So it's an, it's a change of the way we, we both produce and deliver uh, education to students. The second part of where, which the, which is the one we're facing now that now that we have a very broad platform, um, particularly in higher education, growing fast into K through 12, how do we, how do we help this help the teachers and the institutions to benefit from it the most? We cannot burn down these villages. These are systems with a lot of, a lot of, uh, traditions and, to a certain extent, both inertia, but also healthy inertia, where we cannot change every every week. Like every decade, we've had another radio is totally going to change education, right? Mm-hmm. So we cannot we cannot go back and forth all the time. But there is there is a transition that I hope will happen over the next years, where the teachers and the schools will learn how to benefit from these technologies and find a new equilibrium in terms of. What is the role of the school? What is the role of the parents? And what is the role of the teachers? 
Well, this is um, this is great stuff. I thank you so much for giving me some of your time. What if you could uh, tell me how uh, someone could keep up with what you're doing or, or find you on the internet if they were interested in learning more? Um, so I um, both both McGraw Hill has a, a, a publicly facing blog on mheducation.com. Um, we uh, we do a lot of work in. Um, I have a Twitter account. Follow me on Twitter, uh, where I often quote both blog posts and uh, research. Um, so I think that would be the obvious places. And what's your Twitter? What's your Twitter hand, handle? Um, Ulrich Yule. Uh, so my first and middle name. Okay. Uh, well, thank you so much, and um, I really uh, love that you're up to that you're doing all this, and I wish you great success in the future. Likewise. Thanks for having me. In each episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I discuss a piece of self-delusion news before eating a cookie. This episode, that news comes from a Stanford University press release that I received. It discusses this really interesting study published by Tanya Lerman, a Stanford professor of anthropology. In her research, which was published in the British Journal of Psychiatry, Lerman has found that although hallucinatory voices appear across cultures, the voices themselves vary. In the United States, people suffering from a serious psychotic disorder in which they hear unbidden, unwanted voices telling them strange things. They hear those voices as harsh and threatening, whereas in Africa and India, people suffering from the same condition hear voices that are, quote, more benign and playful. Lerman's research has found that in the United States, voices in people's heads are more likely to tell them to do violent things, and those voices seem to come from strangers and evil beings. In India, those same voices are more often those of family members, and they aren't violent or aggressive. Instead, they are seen as entertaining and friendly. The difference, her team speculates, is that in America, people emphasize individuality and the self, so the voices are seen as being intrusions there from the very beginning, they're seen as a threat to the self and people put them in a negative context in cultures that suppress selfish attitudes and emphasize relationships and community and sort of your place in a network of people, which is most of the cultures in the world, America and other Western cultures are actually outliers. Hearing voices in your head in the more relationship centric countries, isn't immediately seen as insanity. In fact, in those countries, in those regions, in those cultures, they're seen as kind of nice and playful. The press release explains that there's a lot of individual variation when it comes to how people hear voices, but broadly speaking, this phenomenon is similar. But this research suggests there's a middle ground, and that's cultural and social factors that influence the severity of conditions like schizophrenia. And this means that healthcare professionals should adjust how they treat certain conditions depending on how the culture of that place in which they're providing that treatment sees certain things. So Lerman says in the press release, the work by anthropologists, this is a quote, the work by anthropologists who work on psychiatric illnesses teaches us that these illnesses shift in small but important ways in different social worlds. Psychiatric scientists tend not to look at cultural variation. Someone should because it's important and it can teach us something about psychiatric illness. So, there you have it. Another case of Westerners being kind of weird outliers when it comes to mental health. 
And another piece of evidence suggesting that psychology up until now hasn't really been the study of the, the human mind, like the singular human mind, but it's been studying one kind of mind, the Western mind. And even schizophrenia is a culturally variable phenomenon. And it's one thing in the West and it's a different thing in other regions and in other cultures around the world. Now, what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. In each episode C of the You Are Not So Smart podcast, I eat a cookie baked from a recipe sent in by a listener or a reader. And if I eat the cookie that you sent in to me, I will send you a signed copy of the You Are Not So Smart book or the sequel, You Are Now Less Dumb. This episode, the cookie comes from Benjamin Dow, who wrote an email saying that he is not only a fan of the podcast, but he finds it very useful because he's a PhD student in organizational behavior, always trying to get his arms around more of the psychological literature. And he loves rediscovering classic studies when I talk about those or hearing about new ones when I talk about those and hearing from people in the world and just generally being a big old psychology nerd, and he sent in a cookie recipe. He says, it's amazingly simple, and yet people seem to love them. They're sort of a holiday tradition. So I agree. These are kind of a holiday cookie. I realized that after I ate a million of them, because usually after Mandy makes these cookies that we pick out of the recipes that are sent to us, we give them away. We usually give them away, and uh, they go out of the house. But this time, they did not escape. Because I ate all but one, and that was difficult to do because these are delectable. Yes, they are delectable, delectable pecan puffs. That's what Benjamin Dow calls them, pecan puffs. Um, and yes, pecan. If you were raised in the Deep South, as I was, no matter where you live for the rest of your life, it's a pecan, and you do not say pecan pie. That, ugh, 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 what's happening? Oh, that hives. Hives are coming up all over my body because I said Pecan, ah, no, pecan, pecan puffs, always pecan, never pecan. Thank you. And so what's in a pecan puff? It's uh, softened butter, sugar, vanilla, pecans, and flour. And then you, after you roll them up and bake them, you put the confectioner sugar all over them. They are fantastic. And here we go. Let's have one. Mmm. Oh, I saved you, mm, but now you're gone. Mm, mm. Okay, so okay, so look, um, they're sort of mysterious because they seem hard, and they seem like they are cookie-like. But then, when you put it in your mouth and you crunch it, it it turns into sand. It just goes. Let's like, have you ever seen one of those CGI? Uh, example videos where someone's like, look, we can model realistic sand now. And at first the sand's just hovering above like a CGI table and then they release it. The, they turn the physics on and it just goes, and it goes everywhere. That's what happens in your mouth. You, you crunch into this and you turn the physics on for its sandy interior. And it goes, it's, it, feels, it tastes like I was at the beach and I was like, Hey, so did somebody just drop some pecan pie? I'll, I'll have some. Oh, Except, except, except it's good. I mean, I don't know. Maybe Sandy Picapai is good. I doubt it. This is delicious. Thank you, Benjamin Dow, for making me think about filling my mouth up 
with pecan pie, sandy beet weirdness. They are so good. I ate them all. I recommend these to everyone. They are, as he writes in his email, sort of a holiday cookie. And that's what it seemed like a real confection. Thank you so much, Benjamin Dow. They're so good. I can't wait to uh, make up another holiday to make some more of these. They're great. If you would like to receive a signed copy of You Are Not So Smart or You Are Now Less Dumb, send a cookie recipe to david at youarenotsosmart.com. That is it for this episode of the You Are Not So Smart podcast. Head to boingboing.net for more great podcasts like this one. Head to youarenotsosmart.com, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or iTunes to listen to all the previous episodes of this podcast. And you can find links to everything that I talked about today at youarenotsosmart.com. Learn more about both of my books, read extra material, all sorts of things. Just go there. Send your cookie recipes to david at youarenotsosmart.com. If I bake your cookie, I will send you a signed copy. Follow You Are Not So Smart on Facebook, Twitter, and Google+. On Twitter, it's at NotSmartBlog. I am at David McRaney. The opening music is Clash by Caravan Palace. Interstitial music by Drew Garraway. And this music and some other music you heard in this episode by Banjo Apocalypse. Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.